Welcome to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. I'm Peter Lewis, the Director of the Centre. This week, we'll be diving deep into the impact of short-stay platforms with Neighbours Not Strangers founder Trish Burt. But first, our wrap of the latest tech news with Digital Rights Watch Treasurer Lily Ryan, Centre for Digital Wellbeing co-founder Carla Wilshire, and Guardian Australia Managing Director Dan Stinton. What a fortnight. I've just been in a fug where the world seems to have been moving at a million miles an hour and I'm sort of coming up for air. I think what um, has been happening, though, in everything from the US Supreme Court and the the eruptions from the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade through to um, revelations about TikTok and, of course, um, also some um, revelations about Google's failure to enforce Russian, Russian-based um, sanctions leaves us with a lot to talk about. So let's kick it off, Lily. Um, the Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade um, has opened an absolute can of worms when it comes to enforcement of state abortion bans. And there are growing concerns in the states on how surveillance technology can be used to prevent women leaving anti-choice states to prove they've been breaking the law. There's been a lot of talk about deleting fertility apps. There's also been discussions around how individuals text messages with friends might be seized and also, you know, the ongoing surveillance of internet search history. So watching this from the relative safety of Australia, I'm interested in your take on what issues are being opened up by what's clearly a retrograde piece of um, lawmaking from a very um, activist Supreme Court in the States. Retrograde is really one, yeah, very apt word for it, I think. It's been really disheartening to see this and to see a lot of my friends in the United States in particular trying to work out what they can do now with a lot of the safeguards that they thought that they had about their lives being taken away, which is really sad. Um, One of the things that we've seen come out of this as a result of a lot of the reporting on it has been people getting on Twitter in particular and saying, well, what you need to do now, anyone who's tracking periods, particularly using period tracker apps, delete those apps, because that's how you're going to protect yourself against this. Um, Period tracker apps have a really interesting history. They've been something that honestly, people who menstruate have fought really hard for in the first place, because most software is not developed by by women, by people who menstruate. And that's a real problem in the sense that um, period trackers just haven't been included in a lot of that. When Apple released their health kit in the first instance, um, and they had, you know, the Apple Watch, the fitness trackers and all of that, period tracking was not a part of it, despite it, you know, impacting approximately 50% of Apple's user base. Campaigned really hard for that to happen. And um, now that we have that, we've seen period tracker apps selling data to people's employers even for people. uh, And this was pre-Roe versus Wade being overturned, period tracker apps selling data to people's employers about their their potential fertility status, which can be used in all kinds of discriminatory contexts. And with the data harvesting that's going on in the background of all of those, and in a lot of apps that we see um, just on the market in general, mostly to sell us ads, but honestly, for, for many other purposes as well, it's been a real concern that this data is now going to be used to persecute people who are considering having an abortion, um, where laws now differ. I mean, they have differed from state to state for a while, but there is now no United States federal protection against this, which means uh, in some instances, people are going to be stopped or it's been suggested people should be stopped from leaving the state to have abortions. 
Winding so, it back, what's yeah. the value proposition of a period tracking app? Give adding someone that's never used one, obviously. Yeah, um, it, it can be useful um, to track menstruation. A lot of people don't have very regular menstrual cycles, and that can be an important point of data for people's health in lots of ways. Your menstrual cycle can be a really important way of determining not just reproductive health, but many other things that are going on in the body, because it also has huge impacts on hormonal changes in systems and things like that. I'm not a doctor. I'm a cybersecurity expert, so you're going to have to speak to a medical professional about how that works in detail. But um, it's really... um, fundamental to the health of a lot of people who menstruate um, because it's a vital part of what the body does. It usually does it fairly regularly, once a month being the traditional type, but that's not true of everyone. And then if you are actually trying for a baby, that can be a really important piece of information to have because different times in the menstrual cycle can correlate to different levels of fertility. So it becomes especially important when you are considering having a baby. And if you're not, it can really tell you something about uh, someone's pregnancy state um, because when you're pregnant, you typically don't menstruate. Dan, how valuable are these sorts of trackers in the um, dark arts of um, online marketing? Um, well, like many apps, they're very valuable. I mean, it's, it, there's a whole bunch of insights that you can get from uh, people's use of these apps, which are then used in my world often for, for targeted advertising. I mean, just to, to state a couple of obvious examples of this, uh, you can obviously, most of the users of these apps are obviously going to be women and therefore that's useful information for potential advertisers. Um, people that are about to become parents are, is also a hugely valuable target segment for, for advertisers because um, as many of us would know that have had kids, you, you go on this big buying spree to, to get a whole bunch of things when you've got a, a new human coming into the household. So, um, you know, that's, that's why this data is often valuable and is often unsold. Um, I think what's really interesting about this, though, is that the, the concern, obviously, is that the potential lawmakers in some of these red states will be able to uh, determine whether or not women have gone and had abortions in other states um, where that may or may not be uh, illegal in the state of which they of which they live. Um, the problem we've got here is that because America's privacy regime is is so inadequate, there's just such huge temptation for companies like Google and Facebook and and really hundreds of others, uh, to be honest. To be able to track, um, you know, everything that we do online, and there's the the value of the data is so high that I, I can't see any way that you can really stop that unless you actually put privacy regulations in change to restrict it in the first place. The, the piecemeal approach that some people are suggesting of deleting your period tracking app is really not protection enough. You really need to go further than that to make it uh, so that this kind of surveillance of people's uh, use of these uh, of these apps is something which is no longer possible. Mm. And then if we, if we go that far, then we hopefully get to a point where um, it's no longer dangerous to be able to use some of these things and uh, the data won't be available. What's been it's interesting a- is a number of the um, companies and also broadly, more broadly, Google, for instance, has um, made this um, statement that they're not going to collect or they're going to actively dispose of any location data related to women um, taking abortions. Um, this seems to me pr- probably a pretty hard thing to enforce. Um, but the fact that the, the court action is, is, is almost putting the asset on a whole bunch of different platforms to reassess business as usual, I think is really interesting. I think we've got Carla who's joined us as well, who was originally going to open up on this um, issue as well. I don't know if you want to throw in anything, Carla. Thanks, Peter. Look, I think this 
And it, it is a really interesting case study um, in and of itself, but it's also got some really huge implications, um, particularly around gender-based data control um, and the relationship between data that's held that's of a deep and personal nature um, and what are the limitations on that um, from the perspective of the state. Um, and I know we'll get into that with a couple of other topics today, but you know there are at least eight states um, that have criminalised abortion in the US where there is um, an opening within the legislation to be able to bring criminal charges against the person seeking an abortion. Um, and there's certainly precedent already within the US uh, around the use of um, data and information, including in one particular case, a woman's Google searching around how to seek and get a termination, um, which was used uh, as part of proceedings. And so to some extent, I think what we're seeing is uh, the open door uh, and, an, and an opportunity to be able to use something that's deeply personal. And I think from a gender-based perspective, you know, having been told for a long time uh, and with an implication that, you know, menstruation periods are something that should be hidden and, you know, that we should be to some extent exchange of it. Um, you know, this is a tool that has been used to empower a lot of women around the capacity to be able to control and track your cycle. So to then have that data turned into something that can be used to effectively um, bring criminal charges against you is a particularly pernicious use, I think, of data control. Thanks, Carla. Um, let's move on to the um, cyber version of um, the, the geopolitics that we're, um, we're seeing playing out around the world at the moment. Dan, um, the US um, FCCC Commissioner Brendan Carr has called on Apple and Google to remove TikTok from their stores. It follows a range of revelations that have been coming out over the last couple of weeks that probably expose the degree to which um, Chinese state-owned players are accessing some of this data. Um, not being a TikToker, but both my kids use it. I'm not quite sure how or why. Um, how serious is this and how disruptive is this to what's become one of the insurgent um, digital platforms? I think this is very serious. Um, we've talked about it I think when TikTok was getting a bit of heat uh, a couple of years ago on, on this show, um, but just as a little, little bit more background for everyone's benefit. So TikTok is once again seeking to mitigate fears over access to American user data uh, after a BuzzFeed report came out, which basically exposed that employees of its parent company, ByteDance, based in China, were able to access that user data and were doing so relatively regularly, at least according to this report. And yeah, as, as Peter mentioned, nine Republican senators then issued a letter to TikTok in response. Um, and a Republican meta, um, member of the FCC uh, urged the chief executives of Apple and Google to kick TikTok off its app stores, which is a pretty extreme response. But nonetheless, I think it is actually something worth considering here. Uh, and a little bit closer to home, Liberal Senator James Patterson has also written to Australia's TikTok CEO uh, to ask about the security of, of the millions of Australian users that use TikTok, because it's, um, it's one of the most popular apps in this country as well. So look, there are two main concerns here, right? There, the first is obviously privacy. ByteDance is a Chinese company. Um, Chinese uh, government uh, basically gives itself the right to demand whatever data it likes from firms that are based in that country, including TikToks. And you have to keep in mind that the Chinese government is also using face and voice recognition technology to really massively surveillance uh, or surveil its own citizens. So you can, it, it's pretty easy to see the potential for harm here. If you combine that face recognition technology or voice recognition technology with the kind of surveillance that we talk about on this show a lot, such as location data, transaction history, browsing data, those sorts of things. You could build up some really sophisticated 
profiling of users of, um, of the service. Now that's bad enough, but the bigger concern in my mind is then what you can do with that profiling because TikTok also has one of the most effective algorithms in tech really for keeping people engaged on its platform. And because of the fact that ByteDance is based in China, the Chinese government does have the ability to manipulate the kinds of content that people see on the app itself. And that could really make what we saw with Cambridge Analytica on Facebook seem like uh, fairly trivial by comparison. Um, so just to give you one sort of brief example of this, and then I'll, I'll open this up for others' thoughts. If you consider that we already know that the vast majority of Republican voters in the US think that the 2020 election was stolen. So just you take that segment of users that are on TikTok, and there's a, you know millions of them that are, and you feed them more and more misinformation on this similar theme, it's pretty easy to see this resulting in civil unrest of some kind. So I do think this is something we have to take seriously. There are potential remedies. Uh, ByteDance could split off uh, TikTok um, and at least establish a, a board which has some members which are uh, outside of China um, and put further protections in place to prevent the Chinese uh, employees' access to the user data. But it's pretty, it's, it's pretty serious in my view. And I think the, the riots on January 6 in the UK show us how bad things can get with misinformation. And I think we need to be really, really careful about bad actors exploiting Not that. to mention so, the ones in the US, but yeah. Um, exactly, yeah, yeah. so. Um, Lily, as a cybersecurity expert, are we overblowing our concerns here or are they real? I think the concerns are real, but I also think that the concerns are, um, as they are often in this case, being directed towards China without doing enough reflection back on the ways that we are using data among Western countries, particularly apps out of the United States, to gather information about people in other countries. Um, as Australians, we should be more concerned about the stuff that Google can do, for example, with the information that it has with our apps, not being an Australian company uh, or Australian-based company, although they do have arms here. It's a very interesting kind of thing. TikTok, I think, is is an outlier in the sense of it being something that is very popular among non-Chinese users across um, Western countries, I suppose. And that means that the gathering of data that they're doing is definitely going to be valuable. But there are lots of apps that gather that kind of data, uh, just as we were talking about with the period tracker apps. Um, it's the same kind of behavior. And we should be interrogating that while we are doing this alongside the criticisms that we're leveling at TikTok. I don't think it's enough to say that just because they're Chinese, it's somehow worse. Um, I think if we, if we go too hard in that direction, that gets kind of racist. And we really need to be examining what we're doing with the apps that we trust inherently day to day just because they're American. Parking the fact that surveillance capitalism is an intrusive technology what would you like to see happen with an app like TikTok where there is clear links into state infrastructure as well? And, and, and does it fit into, again, I, I go back to, is this just that the, the risk is that there is some mythical government figure that knows which cheesy dances our kids like to follow or is there something more serious than that at, at, at stake here? When you install an application on your phone, that application has the ability to gather information um, from your phone itself. And that can vary in lots of ways. Most phone operating system manufacturers and handset manufacturers put restrictions on those in a lot of ways. Um, but it does mean that they are able to get information about the other apps you've got installed on your phone and, and those kinds of things um, that they can use to infer other things about you. 
They also, depending on what you grant them access to, could have location data, they could have all kinds of things. And so when you've got that in the hands of a nation state, that could be really concerning depending on what they decide to do with it. Um, particularly also when it comes to gathering interests, which TikTok is spectacular at doing. They're really good at pinpointing and honing in on those kinds of things. Um, if those interests are things that in some jurisdictions are outlawed, um, particularly when it comes to, say, LGBTQI interests and those kinds of things, that could be used as a way to build the database to persecute people based on those. Again, this is not a problem that's unique to TikTok, but it is something that when it's in the hands of a nation state owned application could be problematic. Carla's very politely put her hand up. Um, your TikTok <laughs> take? Ooh, oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Pete. No, look, I think one of the other interesting bits about this is we've had a, a huge focus in terms of um, cybersecurity national infrastructure uh, that's focused very much on hardware and in particular on, you know, whether Huawei could um, uh, own pieces of our critical infrastructure around digital. But to some extent, what this is is also um, having that conversation cross into software. Um, and to some extent, I think, you know, all of the risks that, we have already analysed with regard to some of the hardware propositions, you know, do flow into software as well. Um, and, you know, it's not necessarily just analysing what it is that you like to curate and what your interests are. Um, it's geolocation and it's all of those other properties that I think become critical here. Dan, rounding out this one. Uh, look, I just wouldn't mind responding to, to Liddy's point earlier around why this is a particular concern that the, the company... Uh, which is owned by a Chinese company is is a particular concern to me. I mean, Libby, I completely agree with you. Uh, I mean, obviously, we've talked about it a lot on this show, right? That that um, the surveillance tactics of many US companies is equally concerning, or at least very concerning. I would put TikTok in a different category, though, um, as a further concern. But it's an and, not an or. And that is that this is a company which is owned by a government which explicitly states it has the right to access consumer data, and that is different to the circumstances that we have in the US. And it's also a government which is going to extraordinary lengths to surveil its own citizens. And therefore, I am particularly concerned about it. So I just think uh, this is the first time we've seen a Chinese-based app get massive adoption in the West. Um, and so I think this is the first of many. But I, I also would make the point that I agree with you. We can't just target this one app. There's going to be more, right? We need to put regulations in place which are going to... Um, protect consumer data uh, for all companies that are operating across the board. And Australia needs to start by doing that with really significant privacy reform. But we've, uh, we've mentioned that once or twice before. Yeah. Look, I'll just round out our, our fortnight in the news, given that I'm totally losing control of our, the timeline, as always. Um, a great piece in ProPublica um, over the last week that exposed the way that Google had effectively ignored the, the Russian sanctions as recently as June 23. Google was sharing potentially sensitive data um, with sanctioned Russian ad tech company owned by Russia's largest state bank. Um, Adelisics have identified close to 700 examples of Rue Target receiving user data from Google. Um, and that includes data that's accessed within Ukraine and tracking peoples um, who have been, um, you know, taking critical information such as mobile I, I, um phone IDs, IP addresses, local information and details about interests and online activity, all the stuff they do generally on us every day of the week, but doing it in a war zone 
and sharing that information with one of the combative um, parties. Now, I don't even know where to go with this. I think on one level, it's just part of the trend of the big tech platforms not complying because they're bigger than any one, one nation. But I don't know, like, what, does that give us pause to, um, to question whether there should be um, some degree of not just asking these platforms to comply, but actually compelling them to comply when these sorts of events clear out? Because it's not the first time we've seen um, platforms being implicated in, um, in war zones. And it feels to me that um, if they become part of um, civic infrastructure in developed nations, um, they've got to carry obligations with them as well. So I guess I'll just throw that one out for discussion. Um, I am going to call on Lily first because she put her hand up. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no worries. Um, so a few months ago, there was a Facebook memo, an internal Facebook memo that was leaked um, to the media that had to do with internal Facebook engineers expressing their concerns that they were unable to comply with some of the regulations around consumer data privacy that they were being asked to comply with by the US government because they didn't know what data they had, where it was going or what it was doing. And this is, this is an issue that I would suspect is not unique to Facebook, which is why I bring it up in this context, because um, we have you know, different categories of data that we, that we use about people. Um, there are the direct things that people upload themselves. And then there's a lot more of the larger category of inferred data about what people's interests are, where they are going, and um, the kinds of things that could be predicted about them that are also really interesting and much harder to, to regulate, but do have material impacts. That comes back to a lot of what we were talking about with regard to period trackers. But it also means that when we're talking about compelling companies to comply with this kind of stuff, we need to reckon with the fact that some of these companies do not have the kinds of internal controls over this information that they really should, mostly because they weren't built for this um, and they weren't built for, for keeping track of that kind of thing. And um, now that it is decades down the line, having looked at, at decades-long legacy infrastructure, it's very hard to put that... that uh, I'm mixing my metaphors here. Put the genie back in the bottle? I'm not sure. One of those things. It's hard to do that. It's not to say that it isn't a problem, that we shouldn't try, but it is. It, I think it goes some way to thinking about the efficacy of asking companies or trying to force companies to do something that they technically cannot accomplish and what that means in terms of how we proceed from there. It doesn't mean that we should give up. It just means that we need to talk very frankly about this issue. Dan? Um, oh, look, I think this is just another example of a pretty similar theme on all of these today, isn't there? Another example mm. of just how difficult it is being able to control um, potential bad actors from doing bad things with consumer data, particularly in digital advertising, right? So th this story was particularly relevant for us at The Guardian, actually, because um, we participate in real-time bidding, um, which is uh, effectively the programmatic advertising that, that fuels the internet. We make our inventory available uh, to that. And the people that we contract with to be able to bid on that inventory or make, at least make our inventory available, we have really strict safeguards in place to ensure that they are protecting consumers' privacy. We, we go to fairly significant lengths to, uh, on a, in our contracts to make sure that they do that. But the problem is that and we are then reliant on the people that we contract with to also hold those standards to people that they contract with. And there's just so many actors in the in real-time bidding in programmatic advertising, data brokers, uh, advertisers, advertising agencies, 
that it, it basically it's it's impossible to control it, which I think is the point that Libby made before. It's it's impossible to actually have a completely foolproof method of um, ensuring that uh, companies or, or different organisations are not accessing that data for nefarious purposes. And so you rely on people like Google in this circumstance to make sure that they are not letting uh, Russian um, actors have access to that data. And in this case, they've failed. Um, and it just demonstrates the point. I mean, we it, it's programmatic advertising is is hugely is is very difficult, and I, I I don't really have a remedy for this to be honest, other than significantly winding back the about the amount of data that's actually available in the. Well, stream. maybe the problem is the programmatic part of that. Um, that as soon as you start making it programmatic, it's it's reliant on whatever the program is, and if that's not, um, and we've spoken about this in, before. <clears throat> If that is not um, accessible and if it's not visible, then it is all a matter of trust on organisations where trust is not something that they monetize. Hundred percent. I mean, it's it's uh, it's one of the reasons why uh, at the Guardian we've got a very strong focus on trying to sell the vast majority of our inventory the fairly old-fashioned way with a sales team and controlling which companies have access to our data. The problem is for us and for many other, well, pretty much every other publisher there's just a huge amount of your inventory which goes unsold uh, and therefore millions of dollars that you don't get if you don't participate in it. And therefore the, the choice you have to make is, well, that means less journalism. And so you, we put in significant safeguards to try and protect what we, um, what inventory we do make available. Um, but as I mentioned, you, you just have to rely on everyone in the, in the bid stream doing that. And that's uh that's pretty much impossible to do. Um, so I think privacy regulation, again, I know we keep coming back to this. It's a, it's a, I'm a bit of a broken record on this, but privacy regulation is one way that we can mitigate some of this mm. and restrict the amount of information that is actually going out there uh, and its uses. So maybe that's a potential remedy. And Carla, that is something that is on government agenda with the incoming government as well. And how important do you see privacy reform in Australia? Like, obviously, that's not going to stop Google sharing um, content with... Um, malignant Russian players, but um, us getting our own privacy house in order seems to be a really necessary first step. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the government seems to have come out fairly early and given an indication that this is definitely part of their agenda. Um, I think, you know, Dan's articulation around that sort of data supply chain approach um, and how problematic that is for companies to actually manage at the individual level um, and company by company. Uh, really underscores why we need it to be a much more sort of holistic and systems-based approach. I think the other interesting bit really in the case of Google and Russian actors is the extent to which it underscores how much the incursion um, and the invasion of Ukraine really was simultaneously not just a conflict on the ground but was an information war um, mm. and how much data and um, and the capacity to wage mm. an information war was actually part of part of the whole process in, in what is now, I suppose, a new articulation of modern warfare. So we are not just talking about someone breaching sanctions. Potentially, you're also talking about um, access to part of the currency of modern cyber warfare. That's a really, really interesting point, Correct. Carla. Yeah. Excellent. Look, let's dive into the, um, I, I guess it's a change of pace and introducing Trish into the discussion. So the reason I've invited Trish on for our deep dive 
this fortnight is almost a, a response to these big discussions we've been having in the first half hour, which is about big global platforms and state and, and, and global politics. The other piece that I think is really interesting in the broad project of, I'm not going to say taming technology, but holding technology to, to account is the role individuals play. Um, so Trish runs a network called Neighbours Not Strangers. She is vociferous in putting out information about the, um, the impact of Airbnb in particular on housing affordability, um, rental availability, general control of of planning laws and double standards in the way that our decision makers go about their business. So um, welcome, Trish. And do you want to tell us a little bit about how you, you, you've built this, this network and what it's like going up against um, a really big, successful platform as one woman? Well, look, thanks for the invitation to speak today. Um, you're scaring the living daylights out of me, I have to admit, <laughs> listening to this conversation so far. Um, and for instance, the head of global policy, public policy for TikTok here in Australia, used to be the head of Airbnb in Australia. So it's interesting for me to see the switchover that that person has made to TikTok at a time where the um, lobbying impacts on government were all wrapped up as far as Airbnb and other platforms were concerned, how that person, how people move and transfer to another position where they'll lobby and knowing all their contacts at different levels of government and, and whatnot. But look, um, I sort of got into this by default, in as much as I lived in a building which had 163 apartments, um, residential apartments, I would say over 65 of those apartments were on short-term rental platforms. We're going back about eight years now. Um, my apartment, which I planned to move into, was given to the building manager to rent out very specific that I wanted a long-term tenant in there. From day one, he put short-term lets in there and my apartment was trashed. So I decided to move in, make the place my home. And when I got in there, the amenity within the building itself was horrendous because we had all this stuff coming and going all the time. So I just kind of accepted that as, well, that's the way it is, until somebody said to a group of us one day, you realise that this is illegal, because I had no knowledge, no background whatsoever on zoning, planning, regulations, construction codes, all this sort of things. I thought this was going to be a very easy exercise in as much as letters sent to everybody saying you have to put a residential tenant in there instead of short-term lets. And it was at that point that all these parliamentarians and very powerful legal people crawled out of the, the woodwork. I didn't even know they were in the building. And um, it was a very threatening environment in there. So look, to kind of condense this, I worked. Um, I was nominated by the City of Sydney Council, who was very active in enforcing zoning regulations within the local government area. 
because people were doing freedom of information searches, they could see correspondence that was going to council, was redacted. Some of it was easy to identify that I was the author of that correspondence. Um, council asked if I would be the spokesperson for the group of residents, which I accepted. Council eventually took these people to the Land and Environment Court and got court orders, which all of a sudden, overnight, we had something, we had, I would say, conservatively 65 apartments back on the rental market from one building, and our quality of life within that building changed dramatically overnight, overnight, because people were in the building were treating it as their place of residence. They were getting up and going to, to work. They were sending kids off to school, et cetera, et cetera. All well and good, and I thought, problem solved. And then not very long after that, um, one night it just struck me, oh, no, we've got Airbnb. So the New South Wales State Government called an inquiry into looking at the um, legislation covering this activity. That was, that was the, the objective, was to go through and look at the legislation. They didn't do that. There was an inquiry. I put a submission in. I wasn't permitted to in address the um, parliament, so I sat there in silence. My submission, with all the details of what had gone on in my place of residence, were marked as confidential, and I was notified that if I handed that to a third party, I would be in contempt of parliament. During one of the coffee breaks, I sat there quietly as this single woman in a corridor listening to a strategic planning person counselling um, legal representatives from Expedia stays and also the Short-Term Rental Association in Australia, what they had to do to lobby state parliament and how they had to lobby parliament to change the strategic planning, um, what do you call it? The strategic environmental planning policy for the state of New South Wales. If you can do that, guys, you've got access to every house in the state. Mm. And look, that's that's what's happened. So in a way, it's a classic story of a new technology coming in, disrupting um, the law then catching up and then the, 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 the power of a growing business to then influence lawmakers to, to make the regulations serve their yeah. interests. Yeah. But what you've been doing, which I think is interesting, Trish, is just continually... Um, amplifying what is almost a daily series <laughs> of stories from all around the country on yeah. the yeah, yeah, yeah. look it's all around unfortunately it's all around the globe because it's a global platform there's only a handful of countries iran um north korea and syria that Airbnb excellent <laughs> I can recommend Iran to you, one of the best tourist destinations. Um, it's a global issue and it's been interesting. If you're talking technology here today, I have Airbnb went into a partnership arrangement with Twitter. So I've had my little Twitter account cancelled two, if not three times. Someone loses all their their followers on Twitter, on social media there. I've had um, on Facebook, because you're, you're the technology people, I'm not. Um, if I've got 
let's pull a figure, 1,500 followers on Facebook. I'm lucky if 100 people see what I'm posting. Um, the algorithms are obviously being manipulated. I actually sat there in April. I don't know what made me do it. And I started just Google searching. And if I can quote some figures, I looked at 136 agents here in Australia, in New South Wales. Those 136 agents had 259 properties available to rent. Those 136 agents also had 42,000 532 holiday listings. Trish, so, can, I, can I jump in? Yeah. So is, is what you're suggesting then that, I mean, if, if I've understood you correctly, you don't think there's any place for short-term holiday rentals? Are, are, you, are you seeking to basically have it completely outlawed? Is it, have I understood you correctly? No, um, because uh, I know what, what was um, mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Um, look, you've, you've also got somebody with, from a travel background. All right. Yeah. So if you've got, and we've always had them, if you've got a, a freestanding property, so it's not engaged in a strata complex and shared expenses and everything. If you've got a freestanding property, you want to run a bed and breakfast, which has been yeah. the case all along, go right ahead. But what that entails is you have to actually go and make application to the local council. You have to modify that building so that the it meets building code, safety code regulations. You pay commercial rates and taxes on it because the council is going to come in and ensure that you're running a safe bed and breakfast. So, so, so Trish, is your, is your bigger concern then that uh, it, it's really the larger uh, or, or multi-residential um, complexes where, where the biggest issue is? Because if I've understood you correctly, it's the, the, the holiday... Or, or the people that are coming and staying in these things on a short-term rental are typically not respectful of the environment the same way that permanent residents are. Is that is that at the heart of it? Um, that's at the heart of it, but it doesn't just extend to um, res like a strata building. Not at all. I think in where we have the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, um, if you have a look at a, a case law judgment called Dobrohotov versus Benick, the judge that wrote that case law obviously knew what was coming and has done such a comprehensive she's encapsulated what we were marching towards um so no i'm not against the the tourist industry in any shape or form but there has to be regulation and you've got a situation where everybody who either purchases a residential property Every piece of legal documentation clearly sets out what they're purchasing into. Anybody who rents, um, who takes out a residential tenancy agreement, they also know that they're entering into a, a legal agreement which is to do with residential housing. So you've got, a, you've got the um, accommodation industry in this country who's kind of very blasé compared to elsewhere so put them aside um, but what you've then got are two um, major factors in as much as you've got the impacts on the people who find themselves surrounded or near one of these properties or multiple properties so you've got that where it's supposed to be a residential zone and the other thing you've now got is um, 
for instance, there was a government report back in, was published in 2017, New South Wales government report, that said in 2014, we had already lost in New South Wales and the ACT 216,000 homes to short-term holiday lets. They weren't, that's not saying it's somebody who's got a holiday property down the coast or up in the mountains and they live in a central business area. That is holiday rentals. So when you think about... Yeah, John's just put a note in the um, chat actually um, about that article that's been running about, um, you know, the... The, the huge impact of, of holiday homes in regional New South oh, Wales um, and the fact that there aren't there aren't homes for people there's, prop, there's no property Carla what's your take on um, the Airbnb conundrum and the the obvious um it's a better business model if you're trying to get sort of a weekly rate out of your place as a holiday house rather than renting it out but there's huge flow-on effects aren't there there is. So, look, I think there's a whole lot of interesting questions in this. Um, so, Airbnb has progressively moved to try and tighten a lot of the regulations around what you can and can't do. And one of the fundamental questions is, can you use a platform like Airbnb, which is really just a connected service, um, to put enough rating systems and other kind of um, uh, policies and procedures and protocols and sign-ups to be able to regulate behaviour? So that's number one. And number two, at a certain point in time, is there a threshold when there's so many Airbnbs in a building where it destroys a sense of community culture? Um, and, you know, what are some of the issues with that um, particularly? So, yeah, they're, they're the two. I'm really curious as to what other panel members think in terms of can you actually, um, through platforms such as Airbnb, uh, create uh, enough incentives in the system uh, to create better, better culture around um, rentals. Yeah, Lily, I think one of the, the challenges is always once a disruptive platform comes into an industry, the horse is kind of bolted and then the regulatory catch-up is occurring. And obviously it's a really popular platform because all those things that you would need to do if you were a hotel or a registered supplier, you don't need to do. Um, What's your take on, is, is this a, a, a use of technology that we just need to suck in and adapt to, or is it, um, or, or do we need to call out the, the broader impact on housing affordability and rental um, availability? I think that there's a, there's a mixture of both. I know that if you, if you end up shutting down Airbnb specifically um, without any kind of attendant regulations, other things will come back up. And there are competitors to Airbnb that do the same thing. On the flip side, Airbnb also makes certain places to stay accessible for people who haven't been able to afford them before. And that is also something that, you know, not every single person who's looking for a place to stay for a short-term holiday is going to be that kind of disruptive person. Um, I suppose the issue would, would definitely come in where, you know, if you've got a, a cluster of them, how that affects things for longer-term residents and tenants. Um, but yes, if you if you aren't doing something at a regulatory level about this, then, then it is going to be a thing that continues to happen. We've, we've seen many different kinds of apps come up. With it's interesting kind of also in the, in the news this week, the, um, the Uber conundrum that Uber's finally reached an agreement with the Transport Workers Union to um, mm. recognise its workers. And that's been like a, 
a, almost a decade long battle now, right? And um, I remember, you know, in the days that seem like salad days now before everyone was talking about data manipulation and data extraction, just the disruption, the impact of the, the, the Uber disruption on the taxi industry and the Airbnb disruption on the, the accommodation industry. Not that those industries weren't open for disruption, but that it was basically flat earth and let, let, let's rebuild the world in our image. Just made you wonder where regulators were sitting and why they were letting it go in under the radar. Yeah, and I wonder also um, whether there are app-based solutions that are as accessible as Airbnb for a lot of people that take a lot of the hassle out of it because a lot of this is faced at the, you know, face toward the user, the consumer, making that experience as seamless as possible, um, which does come at the expense of the other end where, you know, building residents and owners have have their own issues with it. But if we don't find something that is as accessible and seamless at the user end, people are going to continue to use platforms that do make mm. that seamless. So it'd be interesting to see what kinds of alternatives we can put in place. Things like traditional B&Bs um, were difficult to access for a lot of people and also out of a lot of people's price ranges too. And a lot of people are just looking for somewhere to sleep. They don't need the food provided, that kind of thing. So it'd be, yeah, it's, I, I would be interested in it as a thought exercise, what that would look like. Yeah, Dan? Uh, look, I think it's another classic example of a big technology platform outsourcing the hard part. I mean, look, I, I'm, I, I'm, I have to confess, I'm a... You're in an I'm Airbnb a, at the moment, aren't you? I, I'm not in the Airbnb at the moment. Actually, friends, a friend's holiday house. But I, um, okay. yeah, full disclosure, I do have an Airbnb. I do have an apartment which I Airbnb oh, out. Oh, you're is, such so. a tech bro. Oh. I know, I know. Trisha's going to be horrified. But look, I, I, and I, I would make the point. Airbnb is a technology company that outsources the inventory side of of holiday house management, right? Similar to Uber, which is a technology company which outsources the hard part of actually picking up people and taking them somewhere else. Similar to Facebook, which outsources the content production to people like The Guardian to keep the people engaged on their platform and then makes the advertising dollars. So it's a it's another example of a company which are companies which are hugely innovative, which do deliver a huge amount of benefit to the end user, but the suppliers are often the ones um, and the periphery are often the ones that that uh, end up on the on the blunt end of things here. So you know it's a difficult one. I, I do I am I've got to say encouraged though by the fact that. Uh, Brian Chesky, the CEO of Airbnb, uh, in the public comments that he's made lately, has been a bit alive to this issue, certainly more alive to it than what some of the other CEOs of other tech companies have been. Uh, so I'm hopeful that we'll be able to get somewhere. And I'm also encouraged by the fact that um, in New South Wales, at least, there's there are limits yeah. on the number of nights that you can Airbnb your property out, which has, uh, I think, um, <laughs> anecdotally at least, put some had, had some impact on the amount of um, uh, stock which is available in the market, and potentially will have an impact on property prices in in a in a in a better way. But you know, it's a bit of a it's a conundrum, isn't it? I guess all of us have probably stayed in an Airbnb at some time and received the benefit from it. And uh, to your point, Lily, I think they have made it um, holiday houses more accessible to people that otherwise couldn't afford it previously. Yeah. So there, it, there are pluses and minuses to this. I, I did stay in a chateau in France at one point, which was pretty awesome. Hey, Trish, final <laughs> word to you. And, <laughs> and just the um, that whole framing of Neighbours Not Strangers, which I think is a wonderful way of putting together a proposition of the impact of technology on, on, on community. Um, what would you like to see happening with um, Airbnb in particular, but also around that kind of broader platform-based accommodation? Look, um, everybody uses the term Airbnb 
And can I tell you that the people in my building who were short-term letting, it was an illegal use of premises. They weren't using Airbnb. They had their properties listed and I stopped counting at 150 platforms. So anybody that says that you can limit the number of nights per year, it's crazy because you can spread those over umpteen platforms and you can never regulate. Um, it's really clear that what needs to happen is that we recognise that residential housing is for housing residents. There's a major conflict, um, for instance, to mix short-term um, renters with permanent residents is fundamentally incompatible. That's what it's been judged as. And if we don't have a situation where, because it's a local government um, issue, if local government authorities aren't mandated to enforce residential zoning, you've got tremendous impacts on housing supply, affordability, and then of course the, the home lives of neighbouring residents. So you have to have state governments who turn around and say, okay, all you council areas, you have to start you know, enforcing the residential zoning. If our legislators won't do their jobs, then why are they there? Why are we paying them to be there? Well, thank, thank you for sharing um, your journey with us today, um, Trish. Um, we're, we're kind of right up to the hour. Um, apologies, everyone, to my COVID brain today. I don't think it's been the sharpest um, um, emceeing, but it's been more than made up to with our wonderful panel. Um, so much to chew over. Um, thank you very much all of you for joining us um, and we'll be back in a fortnight. You've been listening to Burning Platforms, a fortnightly podcast from the Australia Institute's Centre for Responsible Technology. It was recorded live at a virtual town hall on June 10. If you'd like to attend one of these discussions in real life, you can register at centreforresponsibletechnology.org.au. Burning Platforms was produced on Gadigal land by Jennifer Macy. Talk again in a fortnight.